Blake Hall is the CEO and founder of ID.me, which is solving the problem of verifying your identity online. To be sure, as more and more of our commerce and day-to-day activities move online, it becomes even more important to keep your identity secure and verified. But we all know how annoying it is to fill out all the same information on form after form, on website after website. Why can't we just verify our identity once and take it with us through all our internet activities? That's what Blake and his team at ID.me are allowing their customers to do, and it's already making an impact. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Blake explains the origins of ID.me, which trace back to his time as an army ranger, and he takes us through some of the use cases that prove the success of ID.me's technology. Enjoy this episode. IT Visionaries is created by the team at Mission.org and brought to you by Salesforce. Did you know that Salesforce isn't just for sales? Using Salesforce as an employee experience platform helps make every employee across your organization more productive thanks to a common mobile-first platform for getting work done faster. Find out more at salesforce.com slash employee experience. Hey everyone, this is Ian. You might have noticed that this episode is released on Tuesday instead of on Wednesday. That is because we are switching the scheduling of IT Visionaries to include a fun new segment called Trailblazer Tuesdays, where we interview a trailblazing IT leader just for a little bit at the end of the episode. You can hear it at the end, but first, let's get into our interview. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And we have, on the other side of the country, Blake, what's going on? Hanging in there, Ian. What's going on with you? Nothing much. It's a great day, and it's a great day to talk about identity. We haven't really talked about it a ton on the podcast yet, and who better to talk about it than the guy leading the charge? Um, It's something that our listeners have a ton of issues with how do we verify two-factor authentication, all these things, um, and you've created a really elegant solution. But first, how did you get into technology in the first place? Yeah, so my background was uh, a little bit less traditional. Um, was an Army Ranger. I led a recon platoon, so I had three scout teams and the battalion snipers. And about uh, two weeks before we went into combat in Iraq uh, back in 2006, there were some representatives from three letter agencies that came in and briefed us and they uh, they said everything that you trained for in terms of surveillance and reconnaissance uh, just forget about it you're going to be running uh, kill capture missions targeting uh, senior al-qaeda leadership and they gave us uh, a bunch of signal intelligence equipment that was pretty cool and some additional attachments that would ride with my platoon Um, and so for the next 15 months instead of you know, doing what we had trained for as scouts, which is reconnaissance and precision engagement, we acted more like a SWAT team. And it was it was my introduction to identity, to the power of telecom networks and their relationship to identity verification, and specifically to something we call pattern of life. So terrorists have a very specific pattern of life. They change their bed down locations all the time. They change their SIM cards. Uh, they'll change their devices. Uh, normal people do none of that, yeah. right? You get your phone, maybe you change it every two or three years. You're not swapping your SIM card. Um, you're not changing your phone number very frequently. And so I didn't know it at the time, but um, that year and a half of targeting terrorists and, and leveraging all this data 
when it came to the problem of identity verification, as you know, the credit bureaus and Equifax and, and all the failures that have been associated with knowledge-based verification were public, I realized that I'd, I'd really gotten an early education while I was still in the military uh, on identity verification and what it means to use analytics and tenure in order to verify you know, who somebody is. And so it's not intuitive that counterterror uh, is related to identity, but a lot of those principles that uh, I was taught uh, are actually quite applicable in terms of helping people protect their own identity. And so after you got out of the military, um, you went to uh, went to HBS, you're kicking around some ideas, like how did, how did the company come about? You know, we went through two main iterations. Um, the first one was, it was always fascinated with trust and and so we thought that military and students were the right kind of segments to, to target because they move so much and they're kind of open to trying new things. But as we got farther down that road, I thought we needed distribution with like USAA or military.com or Gannett with college campuses to distribute us. And I wasn't familiar with enterprise sales cycles where two to three years is kind of par for the course. So got a great reception, but once I realized that it would take two to three years of my life to just run an experiment to see if that would be successful, um, we quickly pivoted into a, a niche sort of commerce offering, and, and it was founded on daily deals initially. This is all the way back in 2011 when uh, Groupon and Living Social. And after about three months, we had enough data to know that the daily deals business model was not a scalable one. The churn was just way too high. But we had a lot of feedback from the market that said, um, you know what, we don't really love this notion of like daily deals or a website, but what you guys have built with your ability to verify a group affiliation of a consumer is really interesting. And retailers said, you know, that's not just a problem that's for the military, it's for students, it's for teachers, it's for our employee discount programs, it's for senior citizens. And at the same time, Jeremy Grant, who is running the, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST's program office for National Strategy for Trusted Identities in Cyberspace, NSTIC, um, and he was an advisor to then President Obama. He gave us uh, some feedback that said, you know, identity theft is reaching all time levels. And, and one of the reasons for that is that right now, the same citizen goes to three different agencies, like maybe the USDA to apply for food stamps or CMS for Medicaid or Medicare, they're creating multiple logins and the government is paying Equifax multiple times for the same person. So what we want to do is credential the user once and then make the login itself a shared service. And so both of those data points kind of came in uh, like late 2011 and we had a conversation and we said, well, maybe instead of you know, focusing just on the military and on this daily deals business model, maybe the core problem is identity verification for everybody. It's just a, a core problem, uh, you know, of trust, establishing trust on the internet. And maybe the product should work more like PayPal for identity, that the same way that you tie a bank account or a credit card or a debit card to your PayPal account, and then can very quickly, you know, choose to pay with any one of those linked methods at a merchant site, we could do the same thing for identity. So that no matter which site you first establish your identity on, you could then take your identity and your verified data with you and avoid password creation or a redundant identity verification process on the second or third site. So over the first like 18 to 24 months of the business, we kind of iterated through there. 
negotiated with the government of Montenegro to buy the ID.me domain. And we had formally rebranded and kind of set out on the course uh, for where we're at today. So I think that is right when, I can't remember if I did it when I was in Afghanistan or if, if it was sometime after that, but it was around the 2013, 2012, 2014 timeline that I became an ID.me um, user. And I got to tell you, it has just been awesome. You know, like it, it's just something I just bought a Yeti cooler um, for my brother a few weeks ago and I used it and it was so flawless. Just an awesome experience so far. I think. Thanks, buddy. Um, yeah, no, I'm really it's just an awesome it's an awesome experience. And one of the big things, um, you know, that we were talking about before the episode is just this idea that like the only way that we authenticate for any of this stuff is through Facebook or Google right now. And that's just not really a viable model. Like I don't want them to verify my identity for every single purchase that I make because uh, that's not a good thing. So I'd love for you to like to, to go under the hood a little bit uh, for why your solution, especially when you're talking to, you know, CIOs and CTOs and a lot of these, Um, a lot of these large companies, like what is the value add for having, you know, your employees on, on something like IDME? So the first thing we, we do is we frame the problem that we're trying to solve. Um, and it really goes down to friction. And, um, and so if you think about a two by two, where you've got portability on the Y axis and you've got trust on the X axis, the problem with digital identity is that our most portable logins on the Y axis, Facebook connect and, and Google, they're not trusted. You can't go to financial services. You can't go to healthcare and prove your identity using Facebook. Uh, if we vote online one day, which is maybe the holy grail of sort of um, an application that would need strong identity, God forbid it's with Facebook, right? Um, at the other end of the spectrum, your most trusted logins are typically with your bank, Chase, Citibank, USAA, but those logins aren't portable. You can't Uh, use USAA at Veterans Affairs. You can't use Chase to log into Social Security or to log into your DMV to renew a license. So because these portable logins aren't trusted and trusted logins aren't portable, there's a gap in the top right quadrant. And and that's the gap that IDME is filling. But I want to share a few metrics about why we picked that gap to target. Um, If you look at the research from the password managers like Dashlane and OneLogin, Um, The average American who's using that service has 200 plus distinct logins, and that number is projected to double to 400 over the next five years, according to these password managers. Um, At the same time, if you look at Pew Research, 86% of Americans report using their memory alone to manage passwords. Clearly, that is an unsustainable trend, and that's why, you know, 81% of breaches from the latest Verizon Enterprise report didn't come from kind of like deep nerd attacks against the firewall. It came from breach credentials because we are managing so many credentials in our personal and professional life. Our brain just isn't equipped to remember 400 strong, unique passwords. Um, So a big motto of of what we do is, is like, why is everybody making the same person, you know, create another password? Why are they making them go through redundant identity verification processes that they might have gone through before. We have a model for identity that works really well for physical credentials, and it's based on the DMV. You go interact with the DMV to drive, you go through this kind of horrible authentication experience, but you leave with a credential that lets you check into a hotel, board an aircraft, open up a bank account, 
And so in many ways, what we are doing in a digital way is, is replicating that same one-to-many relationship where it doesn't matter if you first establish your identity with IDME at Veterans Affairs or California DMV or at the city of San Diego or as a healthcare provider with all scripts. Once you've done that, then anywhere where IDME is present, you can use IDME as a medium. And one of the things that we have going for us that, that allows people to trust us is that we're the only uh, NIST 863-3, which is the federal government standards for binding a legal identity to a single sign-on, we're the only certified provider in the United States of America. So we have this very important trust mark and we have these relationships with uh, government agencies and healthcare entities. But our vision really is to empower people to take control of their own identities. They never have to do the same thing twice uh, in an authentication workflow. So no new passwords, no redundant identity verification, you know, and if everyone layers their own two-factor authentication scheme on top of these credentials for high-risk apps, you've got the password management problem on steroids, and, and we certainly don't want to do that. So we think that if you just make a trusted login portable, the economy will eliminate a ton of friction, and that ultimately uh, will help our customers do more business and do it more securely. And I want to talk about the security piece because I think one of the concerns with you know, the use case that we were talking about earlier with Facebook and Google authenticating everyone is that at the end of the day, like they're advertising companies, so um, it's in their best interest to authenticate you as much as humanly possible. How, what is, what happens to an ID me, um, you know, to your identity uh, mm-hmm. on your platform? Yeah, so let's talk through three things, right? So first one would be business model, Second one would be the distinction between the credentialing layer and the application layer, which I think is very important because we don't want to aggregate all of your information in one place. Um, and then the third uh, thing is, is, is about kind of putting users in control. So let's start with the, the business model. Um, IDME doesn't sell data. Unlike Facebook or the, the bureaus, um, we sell trust. In the same way that, you know, when you use a Visa credit card to make a payment at a merchant, Visa's not selling your currency they're selling trust and convenience. You as the cardholder are deciding if you wanna complete a particular transaction with a merchant, but once you've decided to do that, Visa makes sure that this cardholder and this merchant who've never seen each other can conduct a transaction instantly in a trusted fashion. And so that's really the benefit that IDME is bringing. You're in control of your own data and you can decide whether or not you wanna release it to a given organization but when you do that, IDB monetizes that trust and convenience. So, so we refer to the business model as identity interchange. And in the same way that like payments interchange is kind of a function of the value of the, the cart, identity interchange tends to be a function of the frequency of how often the user is authenticating and then the risk, right? So changing your direct deposit at you know, social security on some entitlement benefits is way more risky than maybe getting 15% off on Apple computers or something like that for instance, right? And, and generally speaking, like the economics reflect that because the, uh, the price point is tailored, you know, to the value that, that identity is bringing to a given context. So there's a lot there, I think, that we could probably dig into. But the second notion is what Facebook, why Facebook is kind of creepy is they have pictures of you and your family and your kids. They have all this uh, communications intelligence about what you're talking about, what you're reading. And that's scary because it's very intrusive. Um, IDME does not want to get that deep at all into people's lives. What, what we're focused on are the credentials that you carry in your wallet. 
And many of those identifiers have already been breached in uh, the Equifax breach, your name, your date of birth, your social security number. Uh, Ian, you and I are both vets, so like OPM, we are both part of that. But, but obviously, even if those identifiers are public, if there's a trusted credential provider that can assert that you are in fact the legitimate owner of that identity, it becomes very powerful. Like our names and our addresses are public uh, in phone books and in you know resources, but you can't just bring a piece of loose leaf paper saying I'm Ian into a bank to open a bank account. You need a driver's license. You need a credential from a trusted intermediary that the bank could look at and be like, yeah, that credential would be very difficult to forge in that way. Um, therefore, I'm going to trust that's Ian. So IDME is a digital kind of credential provider. And, you know, I think the distinction is while we will authenticate that you are who you are claiming to be to an application, we don't want to aggregate your healthcare records. So once we authenticate that you're you, we don't see any of that data that's going on at the application level. Similarly, like if we're authenticating you to the IRS, we don't want to get into your tax transcripts or your W-2 information. We just want to tell the IRS, hey, Ian's Ian at this level of trust. And if you're going to go ahead and, you know, let him download his tax transcripts, that's great. IDME actually doesn't want to touch that data at all. So by partitioning the credentialing layer, most of which of that data, even though it's sensitive, is public now, from the application layer, you can introduce some really important controls around privacy in the same way that, you know, your wallet is important and helps you authenticate who you are, uh, but it's much less damaging than if you were to, say, lose your medical records or something like that, uh, which are stored differently. And, and so maybe that's an imperfect analogy, but but we think that setting boundaries around the business is very important for what data we will collect and, and which data we will absolutely never collect. So when you sit down with like a CIO or CTO or CDO, what are the kind of problems that they're talking to you about with with the employees or their users and the things that, that they're kind of particularly interested in this solution? Sure. So um, I'll give a really exciting use case that will be public soon. Um, it's with a major hospitality organization that needs to do uh, digital room keys. And so right now, in order to get a room key on your phone, you actually have to go to a desk in person to show your government ID to verify your, your identity in, in the app, and then you get a room key on your phone. What we're doing um, is, uh, is allowing the individual to verify their identity without interacting with anybody at a desk in order to get a room key on their device. So they can skip a line that will sometimes get up to 45 to 50 minutes long and go straight to their room. That clearly has benefits of operational expense reduction. You don't need as many people at the check-in desk. You can also reduce your kind of peak uh, surge times because people can now self-serve and go directly to their room and then maybe come back when the desk isn't so busy. Um, and it's also just great for customer experience because now people are, you know, getting checked into their rooms faster and having a better vacation and things like that. So um, one of the great things about identity is that it removes friction from workflows. And depending on the workflow that we're you know, targeting, it, it can be really, really meaningful for both the guest and for the business. Um, so what we tend to do is we look for, you know, where are the workflows that are introducing the most friction and usually you can tell when identity is broken, when somebody has to do the same thing kind of over and over again. Uh, we get a lot of conversations about self-serve password reset that's currently directed into the call center. So we're working with one 
a federal agency where they get two and a half million password resets to their help desk uh, each year. And we're oh fully automating that. Right. So, so one, we're like, why are you even moving a password reset, you know, request into the, into the call center channel? Why don't you just leverage, you know, telecom data and government identity document verification to let that individual self serve versus having to call somebody. So, so those are the use cases that we tend to focus on and, and we call it workflow based ROI where we just create, this is what your process looks like today. And this is what it can look like after you introduce identity. And as our network now is getting up to, you know, as we discussed 15 million users, we're adding about 30,000 users per day. Our pre-verified network is getting really, really large. And those folks, can instantly prove who they are, uh, you know, using IDME in both the branded and white label context. And I think, you know, the results kind of speak for themselves. We, we have, have literally lost less than five customers since inception, and we haven't lost any customers in the last five years other than one due to bankruptcy. So we're doing pretty good. That's incredible. So how much of these transactions are improving employee experience versus improving like customer experience? Are, are, are you focusing right now more on people's customers or more on internal? We've, we focus on customers because when you think about how our national identity system works, we go and get credentialed by the DMV that we're geographically assigned to. And then we have this piece of plastic that we can take with us to very quickly authenticate ourselves to hotels or, you know, to healthcare, which we'd regard as the application layer. And that relationship is very different from what your employee credential is, like your data watch card or something like that. My data watch card belongs to IDME. And if at some point I was no longer the CEO of IDME, the expectation would be that I would turn that credential back into my company and, um, and that credential would be deactivated because oftentimes the way that companies pay for employee identity is, is per, you know, kind of seat or per license issued. Driver's licenses don't work that way. They're inherently the property of, of the citizen, of the consumer. So we've focused on giving users control over their own identity. Self-sovereign identity is maybe the buzzword for it, but you know, kind of don't want to conflate this with blockchain or any of that stuff. So, so we give people control over their own identity. And once you've given you know, that individual a portable and trusted login, uh, it can really, really help them and empower them to avoid a lot of friction uh, where they would otherwise have to create a new password or, or verify their identity. And that's, that's where we really focused on because that's where the, the need is the greatest. Um, I think the employee market is always going to be a little bit different. Now, when you get into like employee-based identity, that's where platforms like Okta and Ping and Centrify and Forge Rock, which have a lot of you know, granular controls around roles and access management, things like that. Those are super important for employee identity, but less relevant for consumer identity. You know, how, how, how is an engineer treated versus member support? How is that configured in Active Directory, um, et cetera? Um, but where the two kind of come together is that a lot of these platforms are responsible now for consumer identity and access management. And because they don't have a direct relationship with the end user, if, you know, if these platforms are different places, uh, that individual has to create a, a new login for each one of them, right? Yeah. Whereas in IDME's model, IDME as that portable trusted login can allow the user to bring a fully formed credential with their identity and multi-factor authentication already established. 
And when they authenticate to an IAM platform, we're agnostic. So using OAuth 2.0 or yeah. SAML 2.0 or OpenID Connect, we can connect into a Forge Rock or a Ping. Um, and, and that's where we authenticate the session and their central authentication service can then make the session portable across that enterprise's apps. I would almost call this trend, just like we had bring your own device, this is bring your own identity. That as we get to scale with enough consumers, if you can bring your own identity to work where you're logging in with a credential that a federal agency would trust, you can plug into any IAM infrastructure and into their directory and into their CAS and then, and then have a single sign-on session where they make that session portable across the apps that you're authorized to see. And that gets really exciting because now we're consolidating the number of credentials that people have to manage. Well, and I love that people, I, I think it was such a clever and purposeful, but also uh, also a little bit uh, fortuitous that you started off with so many discounts, which incentivize people <laughs> to go you know, do what's in their best interest, which is authenticate, right? Like, you know, yep. start with the money first. If, if I'm going to get, you know, 90 bucks off my ID cooler, it's perfect <laughs> because I can, you know, just authenticate with ID me. Um, but I think the other piece of that, which we were talking about the idea of network effects is so impactful because once you have done it, then all of this world is kind of opened up to you for every other thing to have a frictional experience. Yeah. However, if you're a company, let's say, you know, like a large retailer or something like that, um, or maybe a retailer is a bad example because they're probably, you know, relatively <laughs> uh, tech forward now, but uh, something like hospitality or something that's traditionally like low tech has a human being that has to, you know, verify certain things. You now have this really easy customer experience that you just get to integrate seamlessly, right? Like yep. you need to do essentially no extra work for on your company's behalf to allow a much more streamlined customer experience. We talked to so many technology leaders that are so focused on customer experience and these levels of friction, you're, you're talking about removing like two, three, four layers of really, really annoying stuff that is essentially table stakes, yeah. especially when you have retailers, you know, like a Yeti where Yeti knows immediately that I'm in every single time I go to their website. Yeah. Uh, if you're, you know, you know, going to a hotel that you were at four years ago and they don't know that it's going to be a pretty, pretty poor user experience. Right. And there's, there's two, two things that you just touched on that are really foundational. So the first one is what's the value of an identity credential, right? And and there was kind of this early moment where I thought about, huh, like if I had to deconstruct the value of my military ID card by context, what was that value? And the value was I could go to a retailer like Home Depot and I could flash my military ID and maybe the cashier kind of like half-heartedly glances at it and gives me a discount. So that DOD credential that's PKI enabled and all these bells and whistles, it was used in a very lightweight manner in terms of authentication to give me a military discount, right? Same thing for a student discount from a university. Could flash a student discount. A lot of them don't have expiration dates or anything else, you know, printed on it. So, uh, but you get a, you know, 15% off at J. Crew. But then when you go back to like a military base or if you're a student going back to a dorm, the credential is authenticated in, in a much more rigorous manner. Um, I would give it to like a gate guard at the base, or if you're a student at a dorm, you actually have a reader that authenticates the card. 
And now you're using PKI technologies and all sorts of different technologies because the risk is a lot greater. You're giving somebody physical access to a restricted space where unauthorized users aren't supposed to be entering. And we kind of don't really think that our credentials are already doing risk-based authentication between commerce and physical access or, you know, if I went to my workstation uh, in the military and I used PKI and like this, you know, strong cryptography with a pin to like authenticate to my email, uh, we kind of just do it. That, that's exactly how a digital credential should function. It should be portable with you. And that's a real challenge because physical credentials are inherently portable on your, on your person. Digital credentials have to be integrated, you know, through these protocols like OAuth and SAML. It takes a lot more work to make them portable, which is why digital identity is, is so problematic. And then the second thing is after kind of understanding, wow, if I like, if I just issued these credentials to students or seniors or employees just for the retail benefits, that provides a lot of utility to a lot of folks without getting into like collecting social security numbers. That's a great place for a startup like IDME to enter the market back in you know, 2011, 2012, while we matured our systems. Once we got our federal certifications to verify legal identity, then it was kind of game on to, to really fix the identity layer of the internet itself, at least for Americans. The second insight is that the government has monopoly on benefits. And so the reason why we targeted the public sector is that government will do things to you that no healthcare or financial services organization in their right mind would do. If it was the same experience to get a driver's license that it was to open up a bank account at a branch, that bank would have no customers. But, you know, if, if you want your social security benefits, it is social security's way or the highway. If you want your VA benefits, it's VA's way or the highway. If you want to drive, you're going to do whatever the DMV tells you to do, or you're not going to be licensed to drive. So recognizing that the government can authenticate folks a lot more rigorously than uh, what any other entity would do, if we're able to credential people at government websites and then make those trusted credentials, those digital credentials that we issued at those government websites, portable back to healthcare, portable back to financial services, back to retail and e-commerce, that's exactly why the DMV is the de facto national identity provider for the United States. So we've got this really interesting blend of capabilities where our pre-verified network, those credentials are largely being bred out of the public sector and now out of healthcare as well. We have a lot of utility for these different groups within retail, but even if we need to verify you from kind of the ground up, we can do that way more effectively than any of the bureaus or, or data aggregators on their own. And the combination of those capabilities is, you know, why we're growing so fast and we're adding as many customers and, and users as we are each day. So what's next? What's the uh, what's on the horizon for IDME? Well, our vision is to, to allow people to control their identity in a portable way across all channels, in-person, um, call center, online. Uh, and if you look at us through that lens, you know, what Clear is doing is Clear is in a different channel, of course, at the airports and in line but they have a direct relationship with the end user and through your biometrics and, and their endpoints, they're making your identity portable across the airports, right? What IDME is doing is the same thing. We just started in the online channel. And once you've verified into our network, almost like the PayPal equivalent uh, of identity, you can then take your identity with you through those same authenticators and release your identifiers to whichever organization. But we, we wanna make that experience seamless that if you think about, you know, if I think about what Disney has done as a property, 
I can use my, my fingerprints and a wearable to get access to a park. I can use my wearable or my phone to unlock uh, my room key at a Disney park. I use a password when I'm on my laptop with two-factor authentication to access their website. They've already made the way that you unlock your account or get access to stuff the most efficient as possible according to the channel within which you're, you're operating. IDME's vision is to take those same capabilities but to extend them out across the network so that developers and organizations can plug into that and you can control your identity to seamlessly access stuff. And, and I think signs of success will be uh, whenever you see somebody doing the same thing twice, like in healthcare where we all have to fill out that damn Clippard over and over again with family medical history, that makes no sense. It doesn't make sense. The latest, you know, healthcare provider you saw is the only one with the most up-to-date copy of your information. We look for workflows like that where you could bring your own identity and maybe your family medical history with you to make these repetitive processes for intake a lot more seamless. Uh, and, you know, I think that'll both be transformational in terms of the time we're going to save people. So healthcare is a really, really big area of focus, and you'll see some big news coming out of the hospitality in the real ID space with DMVs about what we're doing next. And we're super excited about that. All right, let's get in the lightning round. These questions are fast and easy, just like the lightning platform from Salesforce, lightning fast employee experience. And that's what we love about the lightning platform. You can go to salesforce.com slash employee experience to learn more about lightning fast employee experience on the world's number one CRM lightning round questions. Blake, are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. Number one, what app are you using on your phone that's the most fun? Oh, goodness. Uh, LinkedIn. What is your favorite thing to cook or eat? Steak. Favorite book or podcast that you've read or listened to recently? Oh, recently. Let's see. Once an Eagle, favorite book of all time. Um, Captain Monte Cristo, recently. Ooh, that's a good one. Favorite one day getaway in the DC metro area. Salamander Resort. Oh, I've not heard of that. Um, it's a great spot. What technology are you most excited about going forward? Biometrics and machine vision, for sure. What do you do for fun? Play soccer and hang out with my kids. What is your best advice for a first time CEO? Find a great mentor. Hands down. First thing you need to do of many. What question do you never get asked that you wish you were asked more often? <laughs> oh, goodness. Uh, I think it's about how do you put together a rock star executive team? How do you? You have to know what you want going in and you have to learn how to screen for it through interviews and then to hold people accountable um, after they come in. That's it. That's all we got. Blake, this has been absolutely awesome. Everybody can check you out. Uh, check you out on the Twitters at Blake underscore Hall. Um, check out ID.me if you haven't already. We'll link it up in the show notes. Any final thoughts? No, Ian. It's been wonderful to connect. Uh, ID.me is a proud Salesforce and Lightning customer too. So that was fun to go through and appreciate you having me on the show. I had no idea. What a world. What a yeah. world. Awesome. Thanks, Blake. Thanks, buddy. Thank you again for listening. 
And now here is Dragana Boris from the Salesforce platform team with our Trailblazer Tuesday segment. Thanks, Ian. Dragana checking in for another Trailblazer Tuesday segment where we feature amazing trailblazers like Erica, who have turned their visionary ideas into reality with Salesforce. Hey, Erica, how's it going? Uh, it's going great. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to have you on the podcast. Can you share with our listeners a bit about yourself, your current role, and all the fascinating projects you're working on? Yeah, absolutely. So, Erica Adams, I'm a specialist master at Deloitte. And I am a global change management lead for our Deloitte Salesforce rollout. So I manage change management training and communications as we roll out Salesforce to around 60,000 leaders globally at Deloitte. Wow, that's a whole lot of people. So it sounds like a huge focus of your job is really around onboarding new technologies, especially when it comes to rolling out new Salesforce systems, and you said. And you mentioned that you're doing this for tens of thousands of employees, and I know you guys have a huge deployment that you're working on currently. How are you approaching this? What tools are you using? What can you share with us? Rolling out to 60,000 employees that are spread across lots of different local markets and member firms is, is difficult. They have unique challenges with each country, different expectations from the different user groups. and Traditionally, in these types of projects, I have found that when we're uh, coming up with the solution, there are often pieces of the design where our teams will say, oh, well, we can just train users on, on how to do that. Or, yes, that's not the perfect solution, but we can train users on that. Now, my reaction to that is this is a CRM tool. and people expect it to be user-friendly and they don't expect to have to go through hours and hours of training to learn how to use this online platform. And so what we have been doing is really thinking about the fact of what a user's journey should be in the system. They should log in, it should be very clear to them on what actions they should take from their homepage and it should be very clear to them how to create a new opportunity, how to create a contact, et cetera. And what we've been using is the new in-app guidance prompts so that we can give the users the information that they need at the moment they need it. And what these prompts are, are little messages that pop up on the screen and can instruct users on how to use a particular feature, or they can give a little bit of information and then link out to either a training video or a training guide or something else externally from the system that we're trying to get the user's attention to. Wow, that's a whole lot of countries to tackle and a whole lot of people to make happy and make sure they're properly trained. And with Deloitte being a global company, how are you guys managing app guidance across the different countries? Are you setting this up all in English? Uh, is localization coming into play? What is this looking like? What we have done to roll out Salesforce to all of the different uh, regions within Deloitte is that we have set up small change management and deployment teams in each of those local markets and member firms. And then my team works with them to provide the training that they need, to provide them with draft communications that they can use to communicate to their users and ideas around engagement, different events that they should be planning to get people excited about using the system. Now, when it comes to in-app guidance, what we provide is the ability for them to 
customize those prompts at a local market level. And that could be an example like on our welcome prompt on the homepage. When a user who is native English speaking logs in, they see a message that pops up on the homepage that says, you know, welcome to the new platform. It's called Jupiter. So welcome to Jupiter. And if you need any additional help, you can access training materials from the help menu up at the top right of the screen. If you would like to see a quick tour of Jupiter, click here. And there's a little button on the notification. And when they click on it, it takes them out to see a video. So now if I'm a user in the Netherlands and I log in, I see that same prompt in Dutch. So within the local language, that prompt comes up. And then that video takes them out to a message from their Dutch local leadership encouraging them to use Jupiter. So what we have done is not only given each of our local change management leads in those local markets the ability to customize the language of the prompts, they can also customize the underlying materials, training materials or videos that the users get taken to when they click on the action button. And that's allowed us to give them a little bit more ability to localize and gives the users, you know, a real kind of personalized, localized experience. I love it. It's really about making sure that they feel connected to the material and they feel that they have the right folks that they can turn to. What's next for you guys? What countries are you expanding to? What can we expect to hear with all the in-app guidance work you guys have going on? Yeah, we're doing all sorts of exciting things. One of the next steps is that we want to start hearing from our users. So we're actually rolling out a series of surveys where we're going to be asking our users for feedback. What's your experience? What would you like to improve? Tell us any success stories. And we're doing that through the in-app prompts as well. We also are starting to look at how we can surface these prompts at the moment that a user needs them. So we're integrating with things like Process Builder and Flow, so other tools within Salesforce, to be able to really have more control over who sees the prompts and at what point they see these prompts and these messages. We've got lots of other countries coming up who will need specific language requirements. We are rolling out to China and we're rolling out to Japan as well. So we expect those countries in particular who will be really keen on taking us up on the localized language prompts and the localized messages from leaders, but also, you know, expanding the scope of what we're able to do with these prompts to be able to do things, as I described, like collecting feedback through short surveys. Wow, that sounds like a huge next step in really getting people the right information at the right time. And Erica, with you having all of this experience under your belt, do you have any advice for trailblazing visionaries like yourself, whether it be career or implementation related for us to take away? Yeah, so this is one thing that I always advise people who join my team. I think that when we're doing these really large Salesforce implementations, we can sometimes get bogged down by the user requirements that we are gathering. So we talk to our users and they come up with what they really want. And we take that, we capture it, you know, in an agile approach as a user story. And then we, we design to that user story. And what I have found is sometimes we are kind of coming up with a way to solve for that requirement. Instead of looking at all of the great things 
that you can do within Salesforce without writing too much code and taking those back to the user and saying, okay, so rather than us always gathering the requirements, showing them the art of the possible. In our example, we didn't ever receive a requirement that said we need to start communicating to our users using these prompts or you should start gathering feedback using a survey or we should you know be able to have different prompts in different languages the users never came to us with that requirement so if it hadn't been for our team finding out what was coming next with salesforce and then kind of working out how far we could stretch this without customizing then this would have never happened Love it. So stay ahead on the latest tech to make sure you're delivering the best user experience you possibly can. Thank you so much for joining us, Erica. We'll look forward to seeing you at Dreamforce. You'll be on the keynote stage. Thank you. Thank you again to all of our IT Visionaries listeners. If you ever have a question for us or want to reach out, you can just email info at mission.org that's info at mission.org and we can answer your questions we can reach out to past guests we can you know book future guests all that fun stuff thank you so much for listening and let us know how we can help you out take care thanks again to our friends at salesforce did you know salesforce isn't just for sales using salesforce as an employee experience platform helps make every employee across your organization more productive thanks to a common mobile first platform for getting work done faster find out more at salesforce.com employee experience